Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Disability Law Center, celebrating 35 years of helping people with disabilities in Utah by protecting their legal rights and advocating for appropriate services. Information at disabilitylawcenter.org. And by Messina Wildlife Management, manufacturer of organic animal repellents under the Animal Stopper name, Retailer location and other information is at StopAnimalDamage.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Young people in the United States are entering the youth justice system in shocking numbers. Many seem to come out worse than when they went in. The staggering costs and recidivism. For example, more than half of incarcerated kids are likely to recommit crimes after being released. have led people to wonder if there's a better way to deal with youth offenders, and whether exposure to the system itself could in fact be perpetuating a life of crime. Addressing this issue is a new a special film, a documentary from uh, National Geographic. It's going to be airing on PBS stations, including KUED in Salt Lake City. It's called Fixing Juvie Justice. And on Channel 7, you can hear it or watch it uh, Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock. And then there are various other uh, airing dates. You can go to KUED uh, for information there. On the other side of the world, a modern New Zealand youth court has incorporated restorative principles of justice adapted from the roots of its indigenous Maori culture, bringing victims and offenders together in the community to resolve disputes. And Dr. Lauren Abramson in Baltimore has adapted the Maori model and has started an organization that facilitates community conferences as a youth justice alternative and to give hope to those disgruntled with a broken system in Baltimore, by the way, the second most violent city uh, in the United States. Lauren Abramson is founder and executive director of the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore and assistant professor of child psychiatry at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Lauren Abramson, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's really great to be with you. Uh, so we want to talk about the Community Conferencing Center and restorative justice. I'm interested in this connection to New Zealand. Um, I'm assuming you know something about this, Did, and you've adapted some of these principles? Is that what well, you Well, yeah, it was interesting. I was um, minding my own business, studying uh, emotion and the effects of emotion on health and illness. And it was 1994, and I was at a conference of the uh, Sylvan Tompkins Institute, um, that was a conference focusing actually on anger in Philadelphia is where it was. And I met David Moore from Australia, and David talked about the community conferencing work that they were doing in Australia, uh, offering this process as an alternative to court in New South Wales. And they had adapted the process from the Maori in New Zealand, um, which was originally called family group conferencing. And the reason why it was called that for the Maori culture, the people in your life they refer to as the family group. Um, and those are the people in your life who you care about and who care about you. So that can be your blood relatives and other people who you care about and who are in your circle and network of support. So in the Maori culture, when something would go awry, whether it was a crime or a conflict, they would pull together everybody who was affected by the situation and their family group members. Hence, they had this circle process called family group conferencing. Interesting. And apparently in the film, um, there is a, a judge there who, who uses these uh, practices um, 
and a uh, traditional, uh, the idea of restoring a balance. It's apparently a community out of balance, and you're trying to restore balance. Is that the case? Yeah, I think that that in many Aboriginal cultures, um, when people harm each other, it upsets the balance and it upsets the relationships within that community. And the justice process, um, in many uh, cultures for hundreds of years, has been to address the harm that was done and the relationships that were damaged. Now, in our Western criminal justice uh, system, we address that a law has been broken without a lot of regard to the relationships that have been harmed and the ways that the community has been eroded as a result. So it's the the relationships, repairing relationships. It is. Hmm. It really is. Um, And what's interesting about that is when you focus on the people, how people have been affected and how that harm can be repaired, um, you know, this is what we've been doing in Baltimore now for 15 years. The reoffending rates are significantly lower than when people go to court. Because in court, often the victim is not at all involved in the process. Um, and the focus is on punishment. Um, it's not on repair necessarily. It's on separating the people and punishing the person who caused the harm. Uh, and I'm sure, um, and you've been getting results, but I'm, I'm guessing you get pushback from, from people, I can imagine this, who say that uh, justice isn't done if you just... Um you know, try to do something reparative, that that there should be punishment? Well, uh, I guess the response is that there are consequences and there's accountability. Um, And what I do oftentimes is refer to the data that we have from our court systems, and the reoffending rates are sky high. And in fact, especially with young people, the data shows that if they enter into the juvenile justice system, they are not only more likely to reoffend, but when they do reoffend, they do so for more serious offenses. So what the system is teaching them to do is to be better criminals oftentimes. And so all I have to do is refer them to either our statistics or surveys from participants where um, we've had now 15 years of surveys where Participants, both victims and offenders, say that they feel that justice was served. Um, They also report over 85% that they would prefer this process over going to court. Um, And then the reoffending rates are 60% lower than a comparable group that went through the system. So it's... when people do make that argument, we just refer them to the data and we show that we get significantly better outcomes at one-tenth the cost. Hmm. The uh, press release here for the film, which I haven't seen, um, refers to culturally sacred, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, mar- Marae? Or I believe it's Marae. Marae, or a meeting yeah. ground. Um, I wonder if you know something about that. This is in the Maori culture, and this uh, has to do with this idea of restorative justice. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I cannot speak to the specifics of the Marae, um, but I think the the principles around justice are similar to, you know, I I read once that the Mohawk definition definition of justice is the way we treat each other most nicely. 
which is a very different way of looking at justice, is how do we get along and how do we heal and learn in the wake of doing things that harm each other? Mm. And, you know, that's a very different definition and approach to justice than separating people and punishing them. Mm. So I would, you know, the the traditional Maori approach is very much interested in repairing harm and helping those who make mistakes learn how to do it better. I mean, any of us who have raised children or who've had pets, you know that when you punish, it tell, it says what not to do, but it doesn't say anything about how to do it better in the future. And so I think that you know, so many of the Aboriginal ways of doing justice and certainly community conferencing that we've been doing in Baltimore for 15 years is partly focused around the belief that when people cause harm, they deserve the opportunity to learn how to do it better and to learn ways that they can make things right. This does get at something very fundamental about culture, doesn't it? That uh, This idea of, of justice, and uh, you're, with, with uh, this uh, restorative justice, and the Community Conferencing Center, you're, you're, you're trying to change something very fundamental, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, we really are <laughs> trying to change our culture in terms of the criminal justice system, which is an adversarial system that is focused on one person winning and one person losing, and an expert deciding, the expert is the judge and the lawyers, of going through the process of deciding who will win and who will lose. Um, So we're trying to change our culture in terms of our justice system, A, to be more inclusive and to include the people that are directly affected by and involved in the incident. So the victims and the offenders and their family members, they get to decide the outcomes themselves. Mm. Um, And it is focused on healing and learning how to do it better in the future and fixing whatever went wrong and letting the people decide for themselves how to do that. And I think another aspect of the culture that we're trying to change is that we're letting people do this incredibly radical thing, which is to talk to each other in the wake of crime. Um, Our system is so set up so that people cannot talk to each other. And if you look at it in terms of that relationships are harmed and you you need to let people talk to each other in order to repair those relationships. If you're just looking at it in terms of a law is broken, then you really don't need these people involved in it. Hmm. Uh, how serious a crime does this work with? Uh, you know, murder? Uh, well, very that's a really crimes, good you know? question. I mean, I think that that's the place where we get the most pushback. We would love to use this process for as serious a case as, as the courts will send us and divert to us. So I'm really actually proud to say that in Baltimore, our state's attorney's office will divert not only misdemeanor offenses, but they'll divert juvenile felony offenses as well. So auto theft and serious assaults and robberies, um, those cases they will divert to us, and we get incredibly good outcomes with it, which I think is why they're willing to do that. 
We also do something called serious crimes conferences for murder cases, but that's not instead of going to court. That's often 10, 20, 30 years after the court case when the victim's family realizes that they're still plagued by the pain of what happened, and they feel that in order to move on with their life, they need to talk with the person who did this. Hmm. And so we facilitate those. We're going to get into uh, talking about much more about uh, restorative justice and the Community Conferencing Center. We're talking with uh, Dr. Lauren Abramson. She is the uh, founding uh, director, executive director of uh, the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore, Maryland, which, by the way, is the second uh, most violent uh, city in the U.S., and so they definitely have some things to work with there. This comes from some ideas of from the Maori, indigenous Maori culture in New Zealand. And uh, Dr. Abramson with us. Uh, for the hour today. By the way, there is a documentary film from National Geographic, which is airing on PBS stations. Next week, it'll air in Utah. That's Tuesday night at 8 um, on KUD Channel 7. And there are other uh, dates as well that you can see that. It's called Fixing Juvie Justice. And uh, we're talking with uh, Lauren Abramson on the program today. So uh, tell me, tell me how this works. Uh, so, you know, take a take a case, a say a felony, juvenile case is referred to you. Then then what happens? So um, let's uh, take for example an auto theft case that happened, um, and there was uh, a man who lived outside of D.C. actually about fifty miles away, who was in in Baltimore and some uh, young. I think they were 16 and 17 year old, years old, uh, stole his car. So we contact, um, contacted the man whose car was stolen and told him that there was, you know, this opportunity to resolve this together with the young men who stole the car um, and their family members if he chose. And, and if it doesn't work out, then it can always still go to court. Um, in fact, this guy had actually been to court before, and he was so upset about his experience having gone through many, you know, uh, postponements, and he'd go to court, and it would get delayed, and he was spending so much time in the court process, and it ended up not turning out well at all. So he was actually really glad to do it. Um, and the two young men who stole the car came with their family members, um, and the way the conversation works is that there's a trained and neutral facilitator that leads the group through three, talking about three questions. First, to hear what happened um, from the young people who stole the car. And then everybody in the circle gets to, has a chance to say how they were affected by what happened. And that is a very emotional process. We encourage people to say how they feel, if they were angry, if they're scared. Um, just so long as they don't attack anyone else. And then once everybody has spoken, people really begin to learn and connect with each other in a different way. And then the third question is, okay, having heard all this, what do you want to do to repair the harm and prevent it from happening again? And if they can, they come up with a written agreement, and it's very specific about who's going to do what by when, and then we follow through with the agreement to see if there's compliance with it. And I'm just incredibly, you know, heartened to say that 95% of the agreements people follow through with. Hmm. 
What what happen, Tell me what happens in in the person in each seat. So for for the victim right. of of this crime, I guess uh, he in this case uh, sits here and listens to these young men tell what happened. I guess why yeah. they did it, what they did. What's happening with him? Um, so what was really powerful for him, it turns out, is that one of the young men was being raised by his grandparents, and his grandfather came to the conference, um, and his grandfather was a pastor. And the victim was incredible. I mean, the young men talked about what they did, and they apologized, but as the conference went on, this victim was really impressed with the grandfather who was incredibly firm with not only his grandson but his grandson's friend and he said you know your grandmother and i did not expect to be raising kids this time of our lives and it's not easy and we didn't raise you to do stuff like this and you know he said how disappointed they both were um but the victim was also really struck by how loving the grandfather was So when it came time for the agreement, the guy, um, both the young men, really sincerely apologized. And the victim said that he would like the young men to pay his insurance deductible. And they both said, you know, we would love to, but we don't have jobs. So the grandfather said, all right, you guys can work at my church at this rate. And what they did was they figured out how long it would take them to work off to pay the deductible. And so they all agreed to that. And then the young man, the grandson, said, you know, I'm happy to do this, but when I work the money, work and get the money to pay this off, I don't want to just give it to this facilitator to give to you. I want to see you face-to-face and shake your hand and give you this check. And so the victim said, I would be happy to come back to Baltimore and to pick up the check. And sure enough, six weeks later, they had both worked off enough money to pay him the deductible, and he came back, and they gave him the check, and there were a lot of, actually, tears and hugs. And when the man got the check, he immediately turned around and gave it to the grandfather and donated it to his church. Hmm. Wonderful. So what's happening with the young men in this case? Uh, obviously, something happens to perpetrators. The recidivism rate goes way down with this method, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what happens is, you know, instead of a judge in a black robe who d- doesn't know them and doesn't live in their neighborhood or has not really, you know, heard from them, they get to meet with somebody who who they had a chance to tell their story and they've heard how they've affected this other human being. And so actually in another auto theft case, there was a young man when we followed up on the agreement, he had agreed never to, to steal a car again. And apparently a month later he found himself, his friends had stolen a car and he got in the car. And he remembered what he had agreed to, and he told his friends, look, drop me off at the end of the block. I'm not being part of this. So, I mean, I think that really speaks to what ha- what happens, is that people connect with each other as human beings, and that connection really creates a much deeper sense of responsibility and accountability. So what what is happening emotionally here? Is it forgiveness? Is it understanding? Um, Hmm. What's happening? 
I mean, to me, that's the $64,000 question. Um, and I think it's part of our biology um, that we are emotional beings and our emotions, we have emotions for really important reasons. They help us survive. And unfortunately, um, we live in a culture that doesn't let us be emotional. And I think that is to our peril physically. You know, there's people that back up their, their feelings and they're stuck with jaw problems and gut problems and blood pressure problems. And it causes social havoc that we really, <laughs> we can't be human with each other. So I think what happens in a community conference, why it's so effective has to do with people can say how they feel in response to a situation. And, you know, there's something that happens to us physiologically when we do that. Um, it actually boosts our immune system, and it's much healthier for us. And the other thing that happens is that, you know, other people get to see how we've been affected. You know, when, when kids steal a car and when people do harm to others, they usually are really not thinking about or understanding how they've affected other people. So when they get to hear someone else's story and that person is emotional about it, something really important and something very human happens. And so we've had victims who go into a conference saying, this kid needs to go to jail, he needs to be locked up for a year. And I have seen a guy come out of a conference who said, I will mentor you, I want you to finish high school, and if you finish high school, I'll pay for your college. So this, uh, to get into this program, this is a diversion from the criminal justice system. You have to complete it or else you go into the, into the system. This is voluntary as, as well, I, I think. It is voluntary. So if the group comes up with an agreement and they follow through with that agreement, the case is closed. Um, and I should say that we use this a lot in schools as an alternative to uh, school suspension, hmm. which ends up being justification for kids who've done something wrong. So I, I'm guessing you would say that our current criminal justice system, as constituted, is missing something. <laughs> yeah, I think it's missing a couple things. Um, I mean, it's biased. There's a lot of documentation that our criminal justice system is biased based on how much money you have and what color your skin is. And that's a huge problem. There is such a disproportionate level of minority folks in the criminal justice system. So that's part of what we're doing that is we're trying to correct in the system um, is to reduce that overrepresentation, um, which in uh, you know, there's a book called The New Jim Crow, and uh, Michelle Alexander makes the case that mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. Um, it's how we're marginalizing people of color. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And the other piece that we're missing in our criminal justice system, because it's an adversarial system, where somebody's, you know, lawyers, it's expensive. You've got to hire lawyers to figure out who's going to win and who's going to lose. And it doesn't have to be that costly, and it doesn't have to be adversarial. I mean, what we're missing is the human element. 
And I think that's a huge reason why our reoffending rates are so big. Hmm. We're talking with uh, Dr. Lauren Abramson. Uh, she is founder and uh, executive director of the Community Conferencing Center. Uses restorative uh, justice practices. It's in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, she's featured uh, in a new documentary film from National Geographic. It's called Fixing Juvie Justice, and it uh, also features Maori justice practices, restorative practices, on which uh, Dr. Abramson's uh, work is is based. She takes some of those, adapts some of those practices. Uh, sounds like a very interesting documentary. You can see that on uh, KUED Channel 7 on Tuesday evening at uh, 7 o'clock. And uh, there are other dates as well, both on their number one channel and number two channel on KUED, running through August 17th. Fixing Juvie Justice is the documentary. We're talking with Lauren Abramson with Community Conferencing Center on the program today. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to hear some sound people actually going through some of these processes uh, taken from the Community Conferencing Center's website. We'll talk about that as well. And I'll ask uh, Dr. Abramson, um, maybe uh, choose an example of a failure and, and why this uh, system did not work. It's very successful, but I'm, I'm sure there are times when maybe it doesn't work back after break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. And by the Disability Law Center, celebrating 35 years of helping people with disabilities in Utah by protecting their legal rights and advocating for appropriate services. Information at disabilitylawcenter.org. We're back with uh, Lauren Abramson. She is founder and executive director with Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore, Maryland, and is assistant professor of child psychiatry at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She's featured in a new documentary from National Geographic called Fixing Juvie Justice. That will air on KUED Channel 7 Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock. And then there are other airings uh, out for another several days running through Saturday, August 17th. And uh, you can check out the, their website for more information on that. Also featured in the film is uh, the place where uh, some of these ideas of restorative justice originated. And that's in New Zealand with the indigenous Maori culture. So very interesting. It's uh, spread around the world and now being uh, practiced in Baltimore, Maryland, the second most uh, violent city in the United States. Uh, Lauren Abramson, um, before the break... I told you I was going to ask you this. I don't know if you've had, uh, I, I'm guessing that you, you get victims and perpetrators together, you uh, apply these principles, and a lot of, most of the time it works, sometimes I'm guessing it doesn't. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess there's about 5% of the cases that um, either don't result in an agreement or they, they come up with an agreement and they just can't follow through with it. So, um, or they don't follow through with it. So I'll take the latter example first, where the group has come up with an agreement. Um, and, you know, this happens sometimes where the, they will agree to maybe eight things, and the offender has, you know, finished five of them and hasn't done three of them. And so we'll find out why they haven't. Sometimes they just need a reminder, um, but sometimes there's a reason why they weren't able to complete that. And since the process entirely belongs to the participants, we go back to the victim and we say, hey, look, 
you know, this kid did these five things, these three things were not done, and here's why, how would you like us to proceed? And so at that point, they can either say they want to meet again, they can say, you know what, this needs to go back to court, or they can say, you know what, I think that they've done enough, and let's just call it a day. And I got to say that probably 95% of the time in those kinds of cases, the victims will say, you know what, they really made a good effort and I really felt their apology was sincere and let's just, you know, let's close it. Mm -hmm. So I guess the other, you know, situation is where people just can't come up with an agreement. And it's surprisingly rare that that happens, but it does happen. And um, I got to say, with cases with young people, sometimes it's more that the parents aren't agreeing with what needs to be done than that the young person hasn't really come through with really apologizing or, um, I don't know. It, it's it's a lot of different reasons why over the years people haven't been able to come up with an agreement, but they pretty much all understand if they can't figure this out, then they'll go back to court. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens in about half those cases is that sometimes victims feel like they want more money than the um, victims are able, or than the offenders and their families are able to pay. Mm -hmm. And what they find out unhappily when they go to court is that, at least in Baltimore City, uh, monetary restitution is given to victims in less than 10% of the cases. Hmm. So, well, you know, they may have turned down getting $200 instead of 400 and then they go to court and find out that they can't get anything. Mm-hmm. So. I want to go back to, to the extreme case. We treated this a little earlier in the show. I want to revisit this. The case of murder, and this is not being used with, with murder, I, I heard you say earlier in, in the program, but how... Not as a diversion. Not, a, I mean, not as a diversion. Not as a dialogue pr- circle process. Oh, I see. So you can incorporate some of these these methods, and I could see where you know you you wouldn't get approval for a diversion that the, the, the people right. just wouldn't wouldn't wear that, yeah. um, and for obvious reasons. I, I wonder if you ag- agree with that. Could could this be used as diversion for murder, or or is that just beyond the pale? Uh, you know, if 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 everybody involved in and affected by it wanted to try it, it would we we would certainly oblige that. Um, there was a case written up a few months ago in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. It was, I think, the cover story about a murder case. It was a domestic violence case where the young woman who was murdered by her boyfriend, I believe, um, pre-sentencing wanted to meet with the young man and his family members. And as a result of that meeting, they requested a much reduced sentence than the prosecutor normally would have asked for. So that was, you know, that was a case of using the exact same process pre-sentencing in a murder case um, because the victim's family really wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the cases that I've, that I've done 10, 20, 30 years later, it, it's the same dialogue process. We sit in a circle, and everybody gets a chance to speak. It's voluntary. Um, and I think what's been really striking to me is that 
Um, time does not heal all wounds. And a lot of times the victim's family members feel that the only way that they can move on is to ask certain questions from the person who killed their loved one or to say certain things to them that they've wanted to say, and the court system just doesn't let them do that. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a there's another party here, isn't there, that prosecutor in a regular criminal uh, case is supposed to be representing the community, isn't, isn't he or she? That's, and if you sit down with the perpetrator, the victim, you work it out between them, but, uh, and it's brought into greatest bold relief, I think, in a murder case. D- doesn't the community have something to say here? Yeah, I mean, it would be, <laughs> I think we're probably a long way from, from doing, using this process instead of going through a trial in murder cases. Um, I just think it's not impossible, and mm. I could foresee it someday in the future when people really want to do that, and there may be very special circumstances where you would do that. Mm. Um, but I just think we need to be realistic about the way our current system works. I mean, do people feel that our current system is really holding people accountable for their for their crimes and for their acts of harm? And is it preventing people from coming back and reoffending? And especially, think, you know, oh, the answer's by and large, not so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the statistics we used at the beginning of the program, more than half of incarcerated kids are likely to recommit crimes. And there's some feeling, I think, among experts that uh, some kids go into the, the juvie system, um, you know, not, Criminal with criminal mindset come out, uh, you know, more hardened criminals. So there's some there's some things that uh, that are going wrong here. Uh, Lauren Abramson is our guest. She is founder and executive director of the Community Conferencing Center. She uses restorative justice practices. Some of these principles uh, come from New Zealand and the Maori indigenous culture. And there's a new uh, documentary from National Geographic. It's going to air on KUED Channel 7 Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. Uh, that is um, the first of several airings, and you can find out more about that by going checking out KUD's uh, schedule. Uh, before we go to a break, I'd like to listen to one of these clips from uh, your website, Dr. Abramson. Uh, this is, uh, by the way, communityconferencing.org is the place. And uh, this is community conferencing in inner-city Baltimore, and uh, this is a neighborhood problem, I believe, that's, uh, that's being addressed. Let's listen to this audio from the video and then talk about this. Neighborhood residents are often plagued by disruptive and destructive youth in their streets. But few have taken the time to talk with the young people. It's much easier to call the police. We had a lot of kids who were playing out in the street, and they were playing ball all the time, and breaking windows, damaging cars, and... Uh, people were just really getting aggravated because we couldn't really do anything about it. Messing up property, agitating people. It was coming out of my pocket, getting my coffers, my mirror knocked off. So what we decided was to bring everybody together, including the, um, the young people, so they could talk about what was going on for them. And that was the initial community conference. I had two broken mirrors. I had dents all in my car, which wasn't no dents from the football. It was the greatest turnout. I think we had 43 people there, and a lot of them were children, and um, 
A lot of shouting. <laughs> Are they bouncing balls off of my car and off the front of my house? Because I get it all the time and I'm really sick of it. And my children cannot come outside until I come home from work. So the ball play is not a problem. It's something else. So that something should just right. be over now. Right. Now you sitting here talking about them playing in your block. I don't see anybody trying to say anything about trying to get a place for the children to play. Well, we kind of asked the kids what they wanted, and they said, we want to go to the park because we're afraid to go to the park by themselves. And Don Fergus offered to take the kids to the park. If I stop doing the football already, then I'll take them over to the park. I'll get them well enough. It'll be some days. Yeah, they don't need to play but every day. But Saturday, they'll be right. They don't need to play every day because I'm with God. But I'll take them over there. Okay. I'll take so them can over. we make the agreement that when you guys want to play football, you come see Mr. Don. Come see Mr. Don. Okay. And the other days that you're not with Mr. Don at the park, no football on the street. Can they play football? Is that agreeable? That is a clip from the website of Community Conferencing Center. What you're hearing there, uh, Dr. Abramson, uh, that's a neighborhood. The adults are concerned, and uh, youth are playing on the streets, making noise, damaging property. I think you, so you're hearing some kids, you're hearing some parents, and I think you're also hearing the facilitator there? Yep, there were 44 people at that conference. Young and old. The youngest was 18 months, and the oldest were in their 80s. And so what, what did they decide to do there? Uh, this was just such an amazing thing. Um, well, what had happened was there was a community organization that we partnered with, and these neighbors for 18 months had called the police about kids playing in the street. And the community organization kept saying, you know, look, is this, you know, is it fixing it? And they would say no. And they say, well, you can try mediation or you can try community conferencing. Mediation, there would just be a few of you. Community conferencing, there would be all of you being able to figure it out yourselves. So after 18 months, they finally, of calling the police, they came back to the community organization. They said, okay, we'll try that meeting you've been talking about. And so as you can hear on the video, and, and if people go to the video, you can see it, everybody got to express their concerns. There were some racial tensions that got expressed. Um, they, there was a guy who worked an early shift at the factory, and he would go to sleep early, and he said, you know, I turn my air conditioner on even in the winter just to drown out the noise of the kids in the street so I can get to sleep at a reasonable time. And... Um, so what came out of it was that Don Fergus, who had had his beloved Cadillac keyed by the kids and damaged by their playing football in the street, he said, I'll take you to the park and chaperone you. Um, and the thing was, the adults couldn't figure out, there's a gorgeous, huge, Olmstead-designed urban park a block away from where they live. And the adults couldn't figure out why the kids just don't go to the park and play. And for the first time at the community conference, they asked them, and they found out that there's, there was dog crap at one end of the park, and there were drug dealers at the other end that would harass them. So Don said, all right, I'll go there with my friends and chaperone you. And the next day he went there and 22 kids showed up. And within three weeks, he and his friends were coaching 64 kids four days a week, 
playing football at the park. And they did that for several months, and what they ended up doing was starting a football league um, with 40 adult volunteers from that neighborhood. Um, They raised money to buy 100 uniforms, so they had four teams of 25 kids, and they started a football league, and Don was the commissioner of the league. And um, that league is now finished its 11th season. Amazing. <laughs> um, it really is amazing. Yeah. It, I mean, it just continues to just inspire me what they've done because they finally decided to all sit down at the same time and figure out what to do together. By the way, you mentioned they could uh, that choice of mediation or this conferencing. What's the difference? Well, the biggest difference is the number of people there. Um, if they had done a mediation, there probably would have been two kids and two adults. Um, in the community conference, there were, I believe, there were 44 people there, and I believe there were 18 young people there. So, you know, everybody's voice gets heard. Um, if they had gone to a mediation and Don wasn't there, and they came back to Don and said, we decided you should start a football league, Don would have said, forget it, you know, I'm not doing that. So part of the power of it is that Everybody is included, and everybody gets to decide for themselves how they're going to figure it out. Hmm. Here's an interesting quote. There's an article on you, uh, Lauren Abramson, from the International Institute for Restorative Practices. This is uh, Laura Mursky writing this. This jumped out at me. You say, whatever people's image and thought is about this city, referring to Baltimore, and what the statistics are, there are they uh, there are still human beings who live here who are capable of resolving their own conflicts and their own criminal cases in really effective ways just with each other. I think that's that's a key. Get, get everybody together. They can they can work something out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've created. This is another piece that you mentioned, Tom, before about we're really trying to change our culture. I mean, our culture tells us all the time that we need experts to fix things for us, whether it's our bodies and our health or, you know, or our conflicts or whether it's grieving or what, all the things that we need to do as social beings living through our lives. There's so much more that we can do ourselves, but we've bled out of our culture the opportunities for us to do it. And so we're forgetting how to do it for ourselves. So... I think it's an incredibly powerful message that I don't know if you've seen the HBO series, The Wire. I haven't. I've missed that. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, (laughs) I'll check it out. It's based on Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, it's about, you know, the toughness of the city and the immorality of the drug war, among, among other things. But, you know, I call our work the flip side of The Wire because we work in those exact same neighborhoods and... What we're saying is is that we're shaped by the institutions that govern us. I mean, we didn't say that. I think Winston Churchill said that. Mm-hmm. But it's very true. And once we start empowering people to do things for themselves, there's a lot of untapped capacity to deal with these things. And we don't need expensive systems that actually often make things worse, that people can you know, like this group that created a football league that has now engaged 150 kids for 11 years without any outside intervention, and they all get along better, 
And they did it all themselves because they decided for themselves what they needed. If you just joined us, we are talking with Lauren Abramson. She is founder and executive director of the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore and assistant professor of child psychiatry at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. There's a new documentary out from National Geographic. It's airing on PBS stations. It's called Fixing Juvie Justice. The headline here from the press release from KUD in Salt Lake City, Can Maori Juvenile Justice Practices Fix U.S.'s Broken System? That's referring to uh, this idea of restorative justice uh, practiced in the Maori culture in New Zealand. Some of these practices are being uh, used around the world, including at the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore, Maryland, the second most violent city in the United States. And uh, the juvie justice system, many experts are saying, does need fixing. Uh, Young people are entering the youth system in shocking numbers. Many seem to come out worse than when they went in. And recidivism is very high. More than half of incarcerated kids are likely to recommit crimes after being released. Much better statistics with restorative justice in the Community Conferencing Center. Dr. Lauren Abramson is featured on this film, Fixing Juvie Justice. That airs for the first of several airings on KUD Channel 7, Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. Dr. Abramson... This restorative justice and what you've been talking about sounds somewhat related to Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, mm. uh, South Africa. Are there crossovers here? Um, you know, I, I think it's similar in that the, the goal is to try to bring about healing and I think some understanding. Um, and I think one of the fundamental differences is I mean, the scale of what happened in apartheid in South Africa is obviously um, huge and and over years. Uh, but the TRC in South Africa had a, a panel of people hearing people's stories. Um, and uh, it wasn't necessarily the perpetrator speaking directly to their victims. Um, so... It's similar in the in the goal of healing, and it's different in who is included in the process and who's included in deciding outcomes. Hmm. And so it, in a community conference, the victims and the offenders and their family members get to decide the outcomes. In the TRC, the, the Truth and Reconciliation the Commission granted amnesty to any perpetrators who were willing to come forth and just and simply tell their story. One of the common elements, it seems, it seems like we have as human beings a very powerful need to be heard. Oh, yeah. And that's part of this, isn't it? I, I, you just hit on something that is just so important that we are only beginning to appreciate the importance of that um, to our health individually and to our health as a society. Um, but having voice and just being heard is so important to healing and to moving forward in a caring way. Um, I always think about, I don't know if people remember a long time ago, there was um, someone who took a shotgun on the Long Island Railroad during uh, morning, the morning commute and killed several people and injured several others. And it turned out that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Um, and he decided to defend himself in court and denied that he did it. And what fascinated me was I saw interview after interview with victims after they had taken the stand, the witnesses and the victims, and 
they told him how what he did affected them. And even though he denied that he did it, when they were interviewed afterwards, they all said how much better they felt being able to tell their story. Now that's incredibly powerful. If the act of being able to publicly say how they were affected, even though the guy was denying that he did it, still had such an impact on them. Um, I, I just, you know, I think when we think about how we treat our young people in schools when they do something wrong, the immediate response is often blaming, yelling, and punishment. So what if the response was, tell me what happened? Finally, just remind us that there's three-part structure to conferencing. What, what right, is to hear what happened, to give everybody a chance to say how they were affected by what happened, and then let the group decide how to repair the harm and prevent it from happening again. And you've been getting very good results. Uh, 98% of the conferences result in an agreement. There's 95% compliance with the agreements, 60% lower reoffending. And all of that at one-tenth the cost of going to court. You can find out much more at uh, the website, which is uh, communityconferencing.org. And uh, you can uh, learn about uh, Dr. Lauren Abramson, the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore, and the Maori Restorative Justice Practices in a new uh, documentary film from National Geographic. It's called Fixing Juvie Justice. That's airing on KUED Channel 7, Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock, and then other airings uh, out through Saturday, August 17th. Dr. Lauren Abramson, a pleasure. Thank you for spending the hour with us. Thanks, Tom. That was really fun. And uh, for producers uh, Taylor Halverson and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. And a word about tomorrow's program. You've been hearing about uh, UPR's trip to the Uinta Basin. Vernal broadcast tomorrow for Access Utah as a part of that. There's an evening presentation as well featuring Dr. Robert Gillis. He is a state climatologist, and he's with the Utah Climate Center. His presentation and also the topic we'll be addressing on Access Utah tomorrow is climate change. And uh, this is a somewhat controversial topic for many in the Uinta Basin. Uh, a lot of oil extraction. Some are saying that is contributing to climate change, uh, possibly contributing to uh, degradation in air quality. And we're going to be uh, treating those two subjects, air quality and climate change, with Dr. Robert Gillis. We'll also have with us Seth Lyman, who's with uh, Utah State University's Office of Commercialization and Regional Development in the Uinta Basin. Air quality, climate change, from Vernal, Access Utah tomorrow. We hope you'll join us. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Intermountain Medical Group doctors Gary Harris and Bart Avery, welcoming Dr. David Amit to the new North Cache Valley Medical Clinic on Highway 91 in Hyde Park. Appointments being accepted at 563-4800. And by the Celebrate America show, presenting the 1940s musical review In the Miller Mood, beginning September 3rd in USU's Ballroom. Music for dinner and dancing is by the Larry Smith Orchestra. Information at CelebrateAmericaShow.com.